What an amazing story. If you were here Easter last week, you got to see the first part, and that's the second part. And I told you it was so good. We had to break it up into two. And what I love about that story is not just that it was such a radical life transformation, but it exemplifies the length to which God is willing to go to turn someone around, to change somebody's circumstances. And maybe you've had a story like that and you think you're too far. Maybe you don't have it quite like that, but you still have this sense. And that's what we wanted to celebrate, not just last week, but this week, because if the tomb is empty, then anything is possible. And that's what we wanted to celebrate. So as we get back into John today, pray with me. Father, thank you for the opportunity that we have today to gather together, but not just gathering for the sake of gathering, God, but gathering a week after Easter, week after you turning everything upside down. And God, I pray today that you would do that in our lives. Just like you did 2,000 years ago in those early disciples and just like you did in Caleb's life. God, because we believe there are still people in prison. And maybe not a physical prison, but a spiritual one, an emotional one. Maybe one of their own making. But God, we know that you can meet us there. And so we ask you to do that today. God, as always, help us to see what we can't see. Help us to understand it, grasp it, live in light of it. And as always, God, help me to communicate it in a way that is honoring to you and is helpful to us. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, if you've got a Bible, open it up to John chapter 20. We're gonna pick right up where we left off last week. In fact, we celebrated the, the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And we talked about, if you weren't here, you can go back and watch that. But we talked about how he must rise from the dead. Not just that he did, but he must. And the reason being, because if he didn't, then our faith is futile. Our faith is worthless. But because he did, our faith is not worthless. It is of benefit to us. And when he calls out our name, just like he did with Mary, then it turns us around. It sets us free. It changes our life and changes our direction. And we're going to see this week that not only did Jesus meet with Mary, but now we're going to see when he meets with his disciples. In fact, it's going to happen on the exact same day, just later in the evening. So if you've got your Bible, we're going to be in John chapter 20, verses 19 through 23 is where we're going to be today. But let me read 19 and 20, and then we'll stop and chat about it. It says, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, so again, still Sunday, the doors being locked where the disciples were for the fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then to the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. 
Now, we're gonna talk more next week about this fact, but we need to understand that the resurrection of Jesus was a physical, bodily resurrection. The reason why that matters is, one, is there was a rumor that went around during that time that it was just a spiritual resurrection in that Jesus, just as a spirit, was raised from the dead. He, he really didn't have a physical body. And the reason why that's so important is, A, because he did have a physical body, so it's important to get the facts straight. But two, it puts the importance of the emphasis of the fact that just like us, Jesus had a physical body. And when he was resurrected, his physical body was resurrected. So therefore, our physical bodies will be resurrected. So therefore, our physical bodies matter. If we're not careful, we can think that only spiritual things matter. In fact, that was a very Greek mindset of the day that the body was bad, the soul was good. In fact, it's still a very Eastern concept today that, that to be in heaven or nirvana is to like shed the physical and like get to this sense of enlightenment where you're no longer bound by your physical body. And those of us that are getting older understand what it means to be bound by a physical body, right? If you're younger, you still feel unbounded. But the good news for you is one day in the near future, you won't quite feel that way. You're like, why is that good news? Well, it's not really good news to you, it's just good news to us because it makes us feel better, <laughs> all right? But the reason why I'm, I'm saying this is because if we're not careful, we can just be so depressed by the physical. And, and, and then almost, again, either side of the road is a ditch, almost overemphasize the physical, or underemphasize the physical. But what we see here is Jesus, yes, he had a physical body, and yes, that physical body was resurrected, which means the physical is not everything in that it's more important than the spiritual, but it's not nothing because your body, your physical body will be resurrected. I love that John points out in the other gospel to do as well that he showed them the nails, in his hands and the, in his feet and then the piercing in his side. And so even in the resurrected body of Jesus, you, you could see that those things had happened. And so Jesus used that as a way to testify to them. No, this is literally me. Check it out. And so we will have, I believe, when we resurrect some defining characteristics in that we will know it's you, and we will know that it's us, right? We won't just be like floating around angels, like Cupid, right? We will have physical resurrected bodies. And again, we'll get into more of that next week. But first, what I want us to see is the fact that Jesus' physical body, in the same way he could get through grave clothes, like grave clothes couldn't hold him, he also could get through walls, now, this is just one of those cool facts, and, and we don't really know how it all works, but here's what we know. His boys were locked up inside, and Jesus didn't unlock it to get in. He came in somehow through locked doors 
and walls. So even though we'll have physical bodies, it'll be different than what we have now, and apparently we'll be able to go through walls. Which, I don't know, that just sounds crazy cool to me. If you've ever wanted to be a superhero, apparently when your body resurrects, you'll have some kind of superhero powers, all right? Walking through walls, going through grave clothes, and they still, Jesus still, you're gonna see this in 21, eats fish. I'm like, this sounds heavenly. I still get to eat and I get to go through walls. This is crazy, right? It's like the game that kids play all the time and, and, and it's this kind of, would you rather, like, would you rather fly or would you rather be invisible? Well, it's like, would you rather die or be dead or go through walls? I mean, that sounds pretty cool to me. But again, I think there's something more going on here than just these physical things that are occurring. One, and we'll come back to this in a little bit, Jesus can get to them even in their locked away position. Jesus can get to them even in their locked away position. Notice it says they had locked themselves in this room out of fear, out of fear of the Jewish people, which again, I mean, I'm not against locking doors, but the Jewish people just got to Jesus. What good is a locked door, right? The Jewish people just convinced the Romans to crucify Jesus, and yet they think locking a door is going to keep them safe. They think that, oh, let's just stay in here and lock the doors. Maybe they can't get to us. No, they can get to you if they want to. And it kind of shows sometimes the absurdity with which we go to protect ourselves. Now, I'm not speaking physically here. I'm not saying it's wrong to have door locks or a ring doorbell camera or that kind of stuff, right? I'm not saying that's wrong. But what I'm saying here is they're locking themselves away even more so than in a physical sense. Let me say it like this. Their fear is imprisoning them. Their fear is imprisoning them. So all you see is a physical manifestation of a mental reality that they're experiencing, of an emotional reality. They are locking themselves away out of fear because they're afraid. But Jesus comes and stands among them. He comes and stands among them. And then it says that they were glad that they saw him. Now, I read out of the ESV translation because it is one of the most accurate English ones we have, and I love it. But this is one of those instances where I wish they would have chose a different word than the word glad. And the reason being is because how we use the term glad, it doesn't really invoke um, like a strong emotion. Because this word here, glad, literally means to rejoice. To rejoice. To have extreme happiness. So I think a better word would have been and the disciples were rejoicing when they had seen the Lord. That sounds better to me. Doesn't it sound better to you? Because the concept in our English minds are like, oh, they were glad. 
right? Like, whew, I'm glad. No, 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 no. That doesn't get across the thrust of what John is trying to communicate here. They were rejoicing. Now think about this. <laughs> I mentioned this last week. If you go back to the grave to which you had just buried somebody three days earlier and they're not there, that's calls for concern, right? But if you're at your house three days later, after you've seen an empty grave and you're sitting there eating and then that person shows up, like standing among you. They didn't even ring the doorbell, right? You didn't even see them on your ring doorbell. You weren't even tracking them on Life 360 because there was no point because they weren't moving anymore. And then you're just sitting there and then all of a sudden, bam, they're there. Don't you think you're gonna experience an emotion a little bit more than glad? You see what I'm saying? And they did. But here's what's even cooler to me. It's not only that they experienced this emotion, Jesus himself said they would. Jesus prophesied that they would. In fact, let's go back into John, John chapter 16. This is Jesus speaking, and this is Jesus talking about this day, this day that they're experiencing right now in John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verse 20, it says they were glad. It's just kind of cool to me. John chapter 16, verse 20, same verse. I know the verses aren't inspired, right? But it's just kind of cool how it lined up. Look at John 16, verse 20. I've got it here on the screen. Jesus said, truly, truly, amen, amen, I say to you, you will weep, <laughs> weep, at, I said leap, but that's weep and lament put together. All right, that's coming later. You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but check this, but I will see you again. And not like in an R&B way, I will see you again, right? Not that, not that, no, he's like, for real, literal, I will see you again. And you gotta remember this upper room discourse in John 16 happened the same week. This is the same week when they're in the upper room about to take the Passover meal. So this is like four days before it happened. And he says, in your hearts will rejoice, same word, will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. Now, I stress this on Easter. This is why when Jesus wasn't there and the disciples were like, huh, and go back to their home, I'm like, did y'all not remember what he said like four days ago? He just said four days ago, I will see you again. Your sorrow will turn. Your heart will rejoice. Isn't it amazing that God tells us we have reasons to rejoice, but then he has to remind us of those reasons because we can so easily forget? He said, 
you will weep and lament. You will be sorrowful. Now, let's talk about that for a second. Again, either side of the road is a ditch, two ways to be wrong. There is more often than not in Christianity, because of the resurrection and because of God, and, 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 and I don't want this to sound heretical or like I'm saying two different things at the same time, but there is a group of people that want to just go to joy first without being sorrowful, without even allowing for sorrow without even allowing for weeping and lamenting. But I want you to hear this. Jesus said, you will weep. That is the idea of grieving. You will lament. I don't know if you know this, but we have an entire book in the Old Testament called Lamentations. You should read it. Because it will teach you how to lament well. I remember when my mom died almost t this December will be 10 years ago. I, I realized I didn't know how to grieve. I mean, I went to her funeral, came back a week and a half later and preached all of our Christmas messages because I thought, yeah, that's what I should do. And then six months later, I felt like my emotional life fell apart because I didn't know how to deal with this. And here's what's crazy. My mom was in heaven. She's a strong believer. But I... I didn't realize there's a process to getting to joy. And let me say it to you like this. You have to go through sorrow to get to joy. You have to go through weeping and lamenting to get to rejoicing. And this is why this is so important. Joy is not the absence of sorrow like we normally think. Let me say it to you like this. We normally think that in order to be joyful, there can be no sorrow. Or if there is sorrow, there can be no joy. So we tend to define joy and emotional health based upon circumstances. That's how we tend to define them. How our circumstances are going will dictate our emotional state at the time. But I don't think that is a biblical way to do it. And what I mean by that is this. If we are in a state where we're experiencing sorrow, we don't have to try to act like that circumstance is not really happening. This is what a lot of Christians do. Like you can be in the midst of the worst trial of your life and a well-meaning Christian will come to you and like, well, God's gonna turn it for good. Well, I wanna punch you right now. Because right now this don't feel good, y'all. This hurts. So here's what I need you to hear me say. As a Christian, it is okay and emotionally healthy to weep, lament, and be sorrowful. That's okay. But in the other ditch, it's not when you deny it, but you're defined by it. You're defined by sorrow. You're defined by weeping and lamenting. You're at this place like we talked about with Mary last week where you're just in a corner weeping because you can see nothing but darkness. So here's what you need to know. It's okay to feel it. It's okay to be there. It's just not okay to stay there. Why? 
Because if you do, you're denying the power of Jesus to turn it. See, here's what's crazy. This concept of turning, we talked about last week with Jesus saying Mary's name, and it turned her. It's the concept of repentance. It's, it's a change of direction. It's a change of belief. It's initiation of a relationship, changing from one thing to another thing. And so it's important to understand that even though the disciples had locked themselves away, Jesus came and turned them. He turned their sorrow into rejoicing, exactly like he said he would. He turned a grave situation around. You know what I mean by grave situation? If you don't, let me give you the definition of grave. I've got it here on the screen. Grave can obviously be a noun where it describes a physical location like a tomb, but we can also use it as an adjective. So I'm gonna give you how we define it as an adjective. Grave means serious, solemn, sober, weighty, or important. This one I really love. Threatening a seriously bad outcome or involving serious issues. Critical. We talk about, man, that was a grave situation. And what we mean by that is that was a scary situation. That was a serious situation. That was a threatening situation. That was a critical situation. And I think probably the best pun I've ever come up with is Jesus turned a grave situation into a great situation. He turned a grave situation into a grace situation. In fact, if you're taking notes, I'm gonna give you those two points. You might wanna write it down. Jesus turned a grave situation into a grace situation. What's really cool is I was thinking about this this week in studying. I kept typing in the word grave, but every time I would type in the word grave on my keyboard, because you know you, I can type without looking, I would type grace. I'm like, hold on, I know there's a V there. Like, I was like, something's, my keyboard's stuck. You know, that happens a lot. And then I looked down on my keyboard, and you can verify this later. Don't pull out your phones and verify it, but I have verified it, at least on the iPhones. Androids, you may have a foreign language. I don't know. <laughs> but on your keyboard, the V is right next to the C. So I kept trying to type in grave, and it was like, the, and you can call me cheese if you want, but it was like the Spirit of God says, no, it ain't no longer a grave, it's grace. Because I kept typing in grace. Like, not just once, twice, like seven times. I kept, I'm like, oh my gosh. So then I had to look down, and when I looked down, I saw, and the V comes before the C, and it was at that moment in time, it was like the Holy Spirit said, Jason, yeah, this is no longer a grave situation. This is no longer a threatening situation. This is now a grace situation because Jesus overcame the grave, which is my next point, right? I already said it. Jesus turned a grave situation into a great situation. He turned a grave situation into a great situation. Great how? 
great in the sense, now watch this, that we no longer have to lock away our own hearts. Here's what's cool to me. When it said that Jesus came and stood among them, that word there among is literally the Greek word mesos. And I thought about this, which I like this stuff if you know me. I thought, wow, how amazing is it that Jesus came and stood among their mess? He came and stood among their mess. That was a messed up situation, wasn't it? They had locked themselves away out of fear. And imagine if Jesus hadn't come and stood among them, what would the rest of their life look like? What would it have looked like? They would have thought that everybody was out to get them. They would have been suspicious of everyone. They wouldn't be willing to put themselves out there anymore. It would have been a prison, but not just a prison physically. They would have put themselves in an emotional prison, a spiritual prison, where all they could see, watch us, was death. All they could see was fear. All they could see was sorrow. All they could see was weeping and lamenting. But then Jesus showed up. He showed up in the middle of their mess. And they rejoiced. And if you know the story, we'll get into this more in just a minute. From that point forward, how did they live their life? Did they live it fearful anymore? Were they afraid of people arresting them? No. You know what they did? You go read the book of Acts, it's crazy. They would get arrested, and then they would come back and throw a party. And here's what they would say. Thank you, God, that we are considered worthy to suffer with Jesus. In fact, what's even crazier, Paul, in the book of Acts, I think it's chapter 16, he gets arrested, and he throws a party in the prison. So much so that the Holy Spirit gets involved in this thing, starts shaking the prisons to where it opens up the doors. If that is not a physical representation of what God does for you emotionally, I don't know what is. When you worship God, it opens up prison doors. And I don't think it's any coincidence that on this weekend, we showed you a video of a dude who was in prison. And Jesus, watch this, was not hindered by the locked doors. He wasn't hindered. He got to Caleb and the most solitary place probably on our planet. And here's the good news, church. He can get to you wherever you've locked yourself away as well. He's not, let me say it to you like this. He's not afraid to come among your mess. He's not afraid to show up behind whatever locked door you have of your own heart. 
He's not afraid to walk into any weeping. He's not afraid to walk into any situation of lament. He's not afraid of sorrow. He's not afraid of fear. He's willing to come and stand among your mess. Why? Because he wants to turn your grave situation into a grace one. He wants to turn your grave situation into a great one. He wants to turn your sorrow into joy. And here's the best thing about his joy. (laughs) He told them in John 16, you'll have sorrow, but I'll see you again. It'll turn. And then he says this, and not only will it turn, no one can take it. No one can take it from you. If you were here back in, when we preached John 16, I made a point then, no one will because no one can. No one will take your joy from you when Jesus sets you free out of that prison because no one watches. No one has the power to put you back in it. No one has the power to lock the door again. And here's what's crazy. Even if they did have the power to lock the door again, Jesus can walk right through it. Jesus can walk right through. Here's what's even better. Not only can no one else, check this, you yourself can't either. You can't out-imprison yourself. You can't lock yourself up into such a dark place where God can't come free you from it. That's the power of the gospel. That's the power of the good news. And don't you know from this point forward, the dudes were rejoicing. Because here's what's amazing. They're walking around in power and confidence because what's the worst thing that can happen to them? Death? That ain't a problem no more. Death ain't nothing but an upgrade, y'all. You can kill me. I mean, church history tells us, and I mentioned this not too long ago, Peter was not only crucified, he was crucified upside down. John, who wrote this, was exiled to an island after being brutally tortured. And don't you know that on that island, John's just writing more books. He's like, y'all can't take none from me because I've been set free. So listen to me. If you know Jesus and you're still living in your own self-made prison where you're locking away the doors, that's a choice you've made. Not the result of being a victim. I'm not saying you haven't been victimized. But what I'm saying is Jesus can overcome any grave. Any grave because he overcame the grave. So again, and I already said this, I'm not saying there shouldn't be a season of sorrow. I'm not saying there shouldn't be a season of weeping and lamenting, but what I am saying is because of Jesus, we don't have to be locked up by it anymore. Because of Jesus, we can be set free from the sorrow because that sorrow will turn to joy because we know he has turned it. 
and no one will take it from us because no one can take it from us. And in the same way, he's coming back to get us. And when he comes back to get us, he will put everything right that has been wrong and he will resurrect our physical bodies and we'll somehow be able to walk through walls and eat fish. It's gonna be a good day. We're gonna have a marriage supper of the lamb. I'm, I'm praying there's some kind of heavenly wedding cake, you know, buttercream, not that weird stuff that we have now, that whipped stuff, right, you know? But you see what I'm saying? Here's what I'm saying. If you can never get to joy, then that's a choice you made because joy is available because Jesus is alive. Joy is available because Jesus is alive. So you and I don't have to walk around anymore, watch this, acting like we're dead, acting like we're in prison, acting like we still have grave clothes on. Because we've come out of the grave. Because Jesus turned our grave situation around. Now let's go back to John 20, verse 21 through 23. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. This is the second time he said this. I'll come back to that in a second. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. This is the second time when Jesus says, peace be with you. Now, I don't know about you, but I really could use some peace. And peace, in the biblical sense, this is not the word shalom because it's in Greek, but it's the Greek version of the idea of shalom, which Pastor David has said many times, that's what breaks the authority of chaos in our life. It means that even though things are chaotic, I can be peaceful because I know that God is over the circumstances. And even these circumstances can be used for my good and his glory, even though I'm crying about them right now. But here's what I want you to see. He said, it will turn from sorrow to joy. And then he said twice, peace. Here's what's crazy. Both of those two things, joy and peace, are fruits of the Spirit. Galatians 5, I quote it all the time. The fruit of the Spirit is love. Anybody know what the second one is? Joy. Anybody know what the third one is? Peace. Yes. Some scholars believe, because it's singular when he says fruit, it's not plural, that the fruit of the Spirit is love, and then the rest of them are describing what love is. Either how you look at it or translate it, here's the point. The point is the fruit of walking with Jesus and the power of the Spirit is love, joy, and peace. And so is it any coincidence that Jesus says in this text, or John says in this text, he breathed the Holy Spirit on them? Because the same Spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is now raising their bodies is now raising their circumstances, is now turning their sorrow into joy, is now turning their chaos into peace. You see it? That's the fruit. But here's what's cool. Jesus said, as the Father sent me, I'm sending you. Now, I told you just a second ago, the Greek word for among is literally 
mesos. It's not where we get our English word mess. And I was like, please, Lord, let it be that same word because I like that stuff. But it wasn't. But then I discovered something even cooler. Our English word mess, even though it is kind of, you know, connected in a sense, it, it comes from a Latin root, not a Greek root. And if you think about the word mess, I mean, today, mess just has a messy connotation to it, right? It's dirty, out of order. But if you've ever seen movies or you've been in the military, what is the place that's called where people go eat? The mess hall. Do you know why it's called that? It's called that because this word, our English word mess, comes from this Latin word, Greek word, which means to send or to set among. And it primarily meant food at a table. So we call it a mess hall because someone has sent food to the table. And somewhere like in the 18th, 19th century, the word changed from being sent to being messy, to being dirty, to being out of order. And then I thought about this from a spiritual application. How many of us are not living into our sentness because we think our life is too messy? How many of us are missing out on the mission of God because the devil has lied to us about the fact that we're still in a prison that we're not? We think there's no way God could use someone with this big of a mess. And what we forgot is that word message is also the root word. I just said it. That word mess is also the root word of message. God can turn your mess into a message. That's why we also wanted you to see Caleb's story because God didn't just take him from a prison, called him out of prison. Check this, God's sending him back to prison. <laughs> but not in the way that he went the first time. He went in a guilty man the first time. Now he's going to go in a free man to tell other people that are guilty how Jesus saved him from that guilt, and now he's been sent to turn his mess into a message about God can turn their mess into a message too. You see what I'm saying? And think about it. If God meets you in a prison, maybe literal, maybe figuratively, and sets you free, would you not want to go around and tell other people how God can set them free? Or would you show up at church and be glad and then go back to your home? You're like, yeah, I'm glad. Okay. Think about it. No, you want to be telling everybody. And the craziest part of Caleb's story is when he you know how crazy that must have been? He's three days out of jail, and he is so brave that he's willing to walk up into a church where nobody knows him with face tattoos 
you know, and I'm sure what he was thinking is, Christians are always so loving. Surely they won't judge me. That's what he was thinking, wasn't it? Yeah, exactly. But what are the chances when he walks in, a guy in our church named Greg, who had the same story, sees him and makes a beeline for him because Greg knew what those meant. He knew where he had come from. And the fact that he walked into church that day, what are the chances? Because God had already worked in Greg's life to the point and turned his mess into a message. And now this guy shows up and God uses Greg, sends him, hey, you remember your mess? It's a message now. This guy obviously is walking out of a mess. You need to help him. And now he takes him home, gets him into Bible study, helps him get a job. And look at it. What a message. Listen to me. What if there are Caleb's out there waiting for you? Waiting for you and me to walk in with our mess and turn it into a message. I don't think it's any coincidence that Jesus said, I'm sending you. Watch, this is the same day where after they saw an empty tomb, they went back to their home and locked themselves away out of fear. The same day. And Jesus is saying, y'all got to unlock the door and get out there. I'm sending you. I'm sending you out. But here's the good news, but I'm going to give you the spirit. Now, most scholars believe he doesn't actually breathe the spirit on them at this point in time, but he does something physically to represent what's going to happen at Pentecost, which does happen in Acts chapter two, because Luke tells us, Luke who wrote Acts tells us in Luke that he said the spirit is coming. And so Luke wrote a second volume where he could describe that. John didn't. So most scholars believe John's describing here, Jesus showing them the spirit is coming. And when he comes, he will empower you to not only walk out of this locked room, but to walk into, watch this, walk into other people's locked rooms. Walk into other people's prisons. Walk into other people's messes and say, I know what it feels like because I was that. I was locked away. I was in fear. I was crippled by sorrow and my circumstances, but Jesus came and stood among my mess and now I got a message for you. See, that's how it works. And here's what's so amazing. We now have life. That's what John wrote this whole book for. We'll see it next week. At the end of John chapter 20, he says, I wrote this so that you might believe and in believing having life in his name. We have life because Jesus is life. He overcame death. He turned a grave situation to a great situation. Now we have life. And so here's what you need to hear me say. Unexplicably, or, or uh, not unexplicably, I'll think of the word later. <laughs> Unequivocally, that's what it is. This is later. <laughs> Unequivocally as Christians, and I need you to hear me say this, we are pro-life. Unexplicably, uh, <laughs> unequivocally. Because in John 16, did you hear the example that Jesus used? 
I, I mentioned this too. Now hang with me here. You may not agree with me, but hang with me. Jesus, when he used the example of a mother, he said, a human being is being born. So Jesus sees the pre-born, we say fetus, no, human. That's a human. So unequivocally as Christians, we are pro-life. We are pro for life. But watch this. But not just for the pre-born. Also the post-born. Yes, we fight for the right to life. But watch this. We choose life even with our words. See, Jesus said, I'm sending you. I'm gonna give you the Holy Spirit. But then he says a third thing. If you forgive others, it's forgiven. If you withhold, it's not. People have mistranslated that verse and have put some power onto the apostles that they didn't have. So the apostles are now not equivocal with Jesus as if they have the power to actually forgive sins. Again, primarily the Catholic Church has misread that to where they think popes and bishops and priests have a power to actually absolve sins. They don't, because Jesus is our high priest. So what Jesus is saying here is, I don't think you have the power now to actually forgive or unforgive sins. What is he saying though? You have the power now to preach the gospel. And when you preach the gospel, it will forgive sins. Or if you withhold it, it won't. So I don't think Jesus is, is endowing them with this power to actually do something that they can't do. But what he is saying is this, you now have the power of life and death in your tongue. And just like Joshua, when he went into the promised land in Deuteronomy chapter 30, he said to the people of God, I set before you today a choice between life and death. And here's what Joshua said, choose life, choose life. So listen to me, church. We should choose life no matter the circumstance. Yes, we oppose the killing of preborn babies, but we also are the people that speak life. And a lot of us need to remind our social media feeds of this. We speak life. We don't speak death and condemnation. Because if we withhold, that word withhold, check this, means refuse to give. Here's what's crazy to me about Christians. So many of us refuse to give what we were freely given. We were freely given life. Jesus didn't lock us away. We locked ourselves away. Sin locked us away. Jesus came and busted through. This was crazy. He walked through the doors of our heart that we locked away and he freed us. He gave us life. You didn't deserve it. I don't deserve it. We caused it. And yet, we have the audacity to stand up here and debate whether or not someone else deserves our forgiveness or our love or our compassion. 
Let me give you this last point. Don't withhold the word from your words. Don't withhold the, the word. Who's the word? Jesus. And John 1.14 says, the word became flesh and dwelt, anybody know? Among us. Maybe God is calling you to go dwell among some people that done made a mess, that have locked themselves away. And God is calling you to be the life and the light. And here's what's amazing. You don't have to convince them. You don't have to free them. All you got to do is say his name. He'll take care of the rest by the power of the Spirit. So, if we're going to invite the world into this joy, we better do it through joy. We better show up to church and be more than just glad. See what I'm saying? Jesus washed away my sins. When are we going to Chipotle? <laughs> you better get more joyful than that, y'all. You better get more joyful in your homes and in your neighborhoods and in your workplaces because if they're not seeing joy in you, why would they want to receive joy from you? They're like, you're in a prison just like me. So twofold, we're done. If you've locked yourself away today, Jesus is here and he is alive and through the power of his spirit, he wants to free you. But maybe... He freed you a long time ago, but you walked back into that cell, even though the door is open. And by the Spirit of God, you can walk right back out. You need to remind yourself of the joy we have in Jesus. And then tell somebody about it. Let's pray. Father, I pray right now for people who have locked themselves away, locked their heart up because they've been hurt. Maybe they've locked it up because what they perceive you did to them. As if somehow this was your fault. But God, I pray today they would see Jesus and be reminded that it's not his fault, but he did make it his problem. And he came and solved it. And he turned their grave situation into grace. No one looking around or talking here as we close. I just feel like this is a holy moment. 
And I don't know your situation. I don't know your story. But if you're here today and you've never had that moment like Caleb described when he was sitting in his prison cell and you realize today Jesus is standing amongst your mess right now. And he wants to save you. He wants to free you. He wants to turn your sorrow into rejoicing by saying your name. That's you. And you want to trust Christ and be saved and set free. Then right there where you are, you can pray with me. You don't have to do this out loud. But you can if you want to. You can say, Father, I've made a mess. I locked myself away. And I'm in prison. But thank you that you sent Jesus to stand among my mess and to take it. And he died for it. But thank you that he walked out of the grave. And now I believe that. I trust in Jesus to save me, forgive me, free me from this prison. Thank you for loving me. There's always no one looking around or talking here. But if you just prayed to trust Jesus, then you are no longer bound by fear, by death. You are alive. You are free. And so if that was you, would you just simply lift up your hand? We got men and women gonna walk around both locations, put a Bible in your hand, and when they do, you can put it down. Thank you. Within those of us who we've experienced that moment, we know it. We know we trusted Christ but we have not been living in the fullness of joy that he offers. And again, it doesn't mean that we don't ever cry. It doesn't mean we're, we don't grieve. It doesn't mean we're not sorrowful. We do those things. That's healthy to do those things. But those things turn. We experience them, but we're not defined by them. Because we know that even though someone we died, if they're in Christ, we'll see them again. We know that even though we have a death sentence ourselves, it is not the end. So I want to remind you today of the joy that is yours if you are in Jesus. Rejoice. We did a funeral here in Canton yesterday for one of our team members, and her life verse was, this is the day the Lord has made rejoice. Be glad in it. Paul said in Philippians 4, rejoice. And again, I say rejoice. And then take that message to the world. Speak life in your words. Father, I pray 
that not only you'd remind us of this joy, but you would use us as vessels of joy, as people who were dead but now are alive, as people who were in prison but now are free, as people who were sorrowful but now are joyful. You would send us into the messes of other people's lives with a message of what you've done in our mess and how you turned it. We thank you for this privilege and honor of not only being known by you, but being sent by you. And we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, church.